This is Ken Forster, Executive Director of Momenta Partners and Momenta Ventures. Welcome to our Digital Leadership Podcast. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry practitioners. We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to episode 112 of our Digital Industry Leadership Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. Today, I'm pleased to feature a pioneer in digital mobility, Eric Litt, former Director of Digital Internet of Things for Caterpillar, CIO of GM OnStar, and CISO for General Motors overall. Eric built his career on solving complex business and technical problems by bridging multi-disciplines, multiple disciplines, and building high-performance teams of experts. In addition to GM and CAT, he has worked for such prestigious organizations as Battelle Memorial Institute and Lincoln Electric Company, as well as having been an independent consultant himself. Eric, welcome to our Digital Leadership Podcast. Well, thank you, Ken, and thanks for the opportunity to share some of my experiences with you and the audience, and I'm really looking forward to our discussion over the next uh, 30 minutes or so. As as well, and when you say some of your experiences, there are an awful lot of great uh, topics that we could go down, given all the great roles that you have had. And so, hopefully, we'll we'll call this at least the uh, high level pass for it all, and uh, and perhaps subsequently we'll go deeper in uh, in future podcasts. So, let's start with your professional journey. Tell us a bit about your own background and and truly how it has informed your views of digital industry. Well, you know, reflecting on that and and thinking back uh, over my career, I've watched a lot of people try to plan out their career. Um, You know, people uh, back in high school would say, I'm going to be an X, Y, or a Z. And and I never did that. And I I couldn't have imagined what my career would be, uh, nor could I have planned out the opportunities to work for four iconic companies. And, and they're all leaders in their respective domains. My professional journey actually started out at Lincoln Electric Company through their engineering training uh, program. And I was familiar uh, with them because I'd worked as a welder uh, building these electric power plants. And uh, they're the world's leader in welding equipment and supplies. So interestingly, they came to uh, campus. I was in college, they came to campus and they were re- recruiting sales engineers. Well, I had no interest in being a sales engineer, but I'd never been to Cleveland. You know, at 22 years old, I thought, what the heck? It's a free trip. I'll get to see Cleveland. Uh, Of course, (laughs) most of us know that nothing in life is ever free. I didn't get to see Cleveland other than the airport, of course. And uh, that was my welcome to the business world and business travel and the start of my my journey. Um, After passing the interviews, which were quite extensive, I had to convent, uh, to confess to the uh, VP of sales that I really wasn't interested in doing, doing a sales job. Uh, but he offered me a, a job as an in-house uh, engineer. And for those of you that aren't familiar with Lincoln Electric, uh, they are an absolutely amazing company. They're a Harvard Business School uh, case study. They are a um, leader in what today we referred to as lean manufacturing um, and uh, an incentive management. So that, that sort of started my 
my career off and uh, I ended up being responsible for all of their plastics processing and, and winding technology. Uh, and, and after a few years, I was given the opportunity to work directly for the president and the CEO, who was also the CEO, to define the next generation manufacturing footprint. Um, I had no idea what an honor that was for a company that had been in business for, I guess at that time, 80, uh, 80 90 uh, years. Um, but anyhow, they, he gave me this opportunity to, uh, to define their next generation manufacturing footprint. And the most important thing that I learned uh, during that experience was that it wasn't really about what one thinks of in, in traditional manufacturing as cutting steel and bending steel and molding plastics and winding transformers, all of which I had something to do with. But it was really more about the integration of business and technology and the integration across multiple disciplines. And that really cemented my view to look at situations holistically, not as those individual uh, components. So that, that was the start. And from, from Lincoln, I went on to join Battelle Memorial Institute as a systems engineer. I was initially responsible as a chief system engineer for a large Navy program. Um, those of you that aren't familiar with Battelle, they're also a really interesting uh, company. They're the world's largest contract R&D company. They split their work across multiple disciplines. Um, about 50% of their work they do in the government space, about 50% uh, commercial work. And what's really interesting about them is they were founded out of a will uh, of a man named Gordon Battelle as a not-for-profit entity and with the charter of developing science and technology for the betterment of mankind. Um, now, people that have been paying attention to the coronavirus uh, situation might have heard about them recently in the news as they were the company that created the sanitization process for the N95 masks. And I think they actually were, one of their uh, employees was the creator of the uh, N95 mask. I'm not positive about that. Uh, but while I was there, I got to work on both government uh, DOD programs, as well as consulting for some of the leaders in the IT industry uh, at the time, such as IBM, HP, and, uh, and others. My last uh, project at Battelle introduced me to General Motors, where I eventually served a combined time of 25 years. And that was really between working for Battelle, doing some independent work and, uh, and being an employee. At the end of the day, I, I would say um, all of those experiences led me to understand how intertwined the processes that bring products to market are. And, and I think importantly, how dependent we are on the timely delivery and integrity of data, how, how important that is to the success of the products and and uh, and as and to the market as well, so that's sort of a short overview. And um, uh, I guess we can uh, sort of take it from there. Hopefully, uh, that you found that Perfect. interesting. 
Yeah, no, very much so. In fact, uh, it, it it really, you can already see the red thread forming. Next-gen manufacturing footprint. GM, of course, was uh, a, a leader in uh, in manufacturing connectivity, uh, especially during that time frame. And I loved your comments around um, the uh, integrity of data. So I know after early work with uh, OnStar, at least I'll, I'll say your first, uh, your first in, engagement with them, you became the chief information security officer for GM overall. Uh, actually, from my... Uh, Knowledge is really one of the first examples uh, we know of the, of the uh, per, that role actually being created in a company that was securing their own connected products at the time. So versus, uh, let's say, IT. Um, what was GM's inspiration for creating the role, and really yours for uh, for taking that? Boy, uh, one of the uh, I'd say most interesting career decisions. Um, I got to make, and you're referring to the, the role of, of uh, the CISO at GM, not the OnStar, right? Uh, correct, I am, yep. Yeah, so yeah, I would say um, it was one of the most interesting career decisions I got to make. Uh, I had the opportunity to help OnStar massively restructure their infrastructure in a four-month firefight. Um, but uh, at the end of that, I was asked by the CIO to take on the role as GM's first global chief information security officer. This was in the early days of, of the real definition of, of that role. And I would say the, the genesis of this came from the GM board of directors. And they were concerned, like many other uh, boards were, that the company might have risk exposure that wasn't being paid adequate attention to. And so time frame wise, this was in the in the era of viruses and worms, things like my doom out there causing mayhem and, and interrupting business operations uh, and that. And so the CIO approached me and, and he said, you know, the board is asking for this. We, we really don't have this role um, like you with all your background to take this on. And so <clears throat> from a, career perspective, or at least from a personal career perspective, I'd say, I actually thought this was a crazy idea. So why would anyone take on a job that on your best day, nobody knew you existed, and on your worst day, you were the excuse for being on the front page of the Wall Street Journal as the scapegoat <laughs> for the company being another victim. Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, long story short, um, through my previous in consulting engagements, I had an interaction with a, with an old-time IBMer uh, when I was working at Patel, and, and he told me, take the job that has the lowest expectations, because at the worst case, w what can happen? You meet the expectations. And I figured it wouldn't take that much to beat the naysayers. It was a huge challenge. It had a lot of visibility, and uh, it was certainly one of the best career decisions that I had the opportunity to make. And you, you know, you were a bit of an activist, CISO. Um, as I remember, speaking at Black Hat conferences at the time, challenging hackers, constantly discussing the future of connected mobility. It was kind of interesting because I think your peers, a lot of times, will choose a very low profile in the industry per se. A lot of them don't even carry uh, uh, profiles on LinkedIn. So, why the visibility, and why were what were some of the outcomes you sought by uh, by uh, creating such visibility? <laughs> Well, that's a great question. Um, so I, I would say 
from a career perspective, I got more external visibility from that role than any role that I'd had before or, or since. And in that position, of course, it's a double-edged sword. When, you know, when you're talking about security, how much do you want to talk about security? But remember, the board wanted assurance that we were secure. And it was a wild world out there. So some amount of visibility was a necessity. On the flip side of that, bragging or boasting about how secure one might think the company was, uh, was an invitation and, and potentially a recipe for disaster. Uh, for GM, we already represented American capitalism and wealth. And despite what many Americans may believe, we as a country are not universally loved. So being a big target and being boastful was, uh, was clearly not the objective, right? But <laughs> keynoting at, at Black Hat was, a, was an interesting challenge. I certainly didn't want to invite more attacks from a bunch of really smart IT professionals. But I also recognized whether or not I went there, they were going to do, shall we say, research and share it broadly. And so as I was thinking about the actors that use IT as an attack vector, there are some that I thought could actually be leveraged in a positive way. And my thought was along the lines of, how could I get those individuals the recognition that they wanted and, and reward for doing positive things? Um, positive things to help secure IT environments. And so that's really the essence of the challenge that I presented to that community. And uh, not to take credit for it at all, but today I think we can probably look at the open source community as an example that uses a similar argument. How do you collectively work together to, um, to affect a positive outcome? And, you know, when we think about security, there is different types of actors out there. Some you're never going to, to be able to bring into the fold. Uh, but those that are looking for, for fame and to some degree fortune, I thought there was an opportunity to, to bring in. And, and that was the challenge uh, that, I, that I put out there. And I think you do see some of those aspects now with the way um, some of the IT companies are, are, are working with people to expose vulnerabilities and to close them responsibly. Yeah, you planted some great seeds back then. Uh, for repeat listeners of uh, our podcast, you'll know that last week we pre, uh, we uh, featured Lieutenant Colonel J.J. Snow, the U.S. Air Force Chief Technology Officer, and she actually it has run a hackathon for Air Force reconnaissance satellites uh, and specifically awarded some of the winners who managed to get through uh, the, the multiple layers of, of uh, security. So um, the, those, those seeds have carried on to a point that's almost unfathomable if you were thinking from eyes 10 years ago that the Air Force would actually be paying people to hack their own satellites. <laughs> so well, well done, Eric, in planting those seeds way back when. So um, even though that was, I'll call your celeb role in terms of the CISO role, 
the one that a lot of people will know you for is when you became CIO of uh, General Motors OnStar, truly a pioneer in connected mobility. I, I don't know how many of us could imagine uh, a, a Tesla today without that connectivity, or even you know our Land Rovers, Volkswagens, or whatever the case may be, having you know uh, uh, you know Apple Play on it. What were some of the key projects you led during that time, and what were some of the early lessons you learned? Well, maybe before answering that, a little plug for the history there. Um, many of the car companies that had telematics back in the early days were actually white-labeled uh, OnStar. And that is somewhat public uh, in, in the public domain, so uh, no secrets are spilled there. Uh, but I won't list who they all, uh, who they all were. Um, so probably the, the most visible short-term impact um, that I had was being the senior executive that was responsible for the implementation of 4G LTE across GM's North American portfolio. Um, that, that was just a hugely enormous challenge in that we were launching it on what we call a, a knife edge cutover in Canada and the United States. It was new hardware that was being put into all of the vehicles that were being produced. It was part of the product release process. And, you know, once you pass a, a, a particular toll gate in the, in the vehicle development process, there's no turning back. So if we failed, every vehicle coming off the assembly line would have been without OnStar service. And you can imagine the, the brand and business implications could have been uh, disastrous. Um, so 4G LTE was certainly one that got a tremendous amount of, of exposure. We'd like to have been able to say we were the first one to get any vehicle with 4G LTE on it, but we certainly, which uh, we didn't quite accomplish by, I guess, a few months, but we were the first to put it across uh, the entire portfolio. But, uh, you know, on top of that, there were so many other things uh, that were done during my tenure there. We launched services in Mexico. We didn't have services in Mexico at that time. Uh, we did major upgrades uh, to the systems in China. China's, and obviously not being there anymore, I can't tell you the exact uh, ratios, but probably uh, in the order of magnitude of 50% of the uh, OnStar uh, aggregated business actually comes from uh, China. Uh, and we also built a lighter version of the systems that run OnStar for a launch in Europe. And I and I just recently read that with the sale of uh, Opel and Vauxhall a couple of couple of years ago, that um, OnStar is, is uh, going to be wound down within the uh, European uh, community as it's no longer part of uh, General Motors. So those were certainly some of the, the big projects. Um, but, you know, when you think about lessons learned, uh, we were really inventing or reinventing the control surfaces of the plane as we were flying it. And uh, fortunately, there were no crashes, and, and I think most of the scars from those uh, stressors uh, have healed. Um, the, the 4G LTE implementation, it, it was designed, it was built, it was implemented concurrently with the major re-architecting of the underlying systems. Those were hugely aggressive programs. They were accelerated at the risk, at the, not risk, but at the request also at risk, <laughs> uh, of the chairman of the board. Um, they had significant business risk, and the vice chairman of the board at that time 
recognized he needed someone who had credibility with the business leaders and, and could manage the technical complexity to drive them to successful conclusion. And that's when he asked me to take over um, those programs. Um, you know, from a lessons perspective, if I could have planned them out instead of inheriting them mid-flight, I think we could have reduced the risk and, and probably improved the initial quality. Um, but, you know, it's an interesting balance because that said, the price of, of that might have been a little longer duration initially. Um, and there's always that balance between speed or, or time to market and being conservative and, and minimizing risk. So, uh, you know, we, at the, at the, uh, at the expense of, of taking uh, credit for things that I actually didn't do, um, you know, as a leader, we don't really do anything. All we do is enable our teams. And at the end of the day, none of all those accomplishments could have been uh, succeeded or, or, or accomplished uh, without an incredibly talented and dedicated team. And, and I was in, you know, very fortunate to be able to inherit some really good people and to help some people um, you know, be successful uh, at that. So it's uh, it, uh, that, that's it's a hard little to, bit of, about the background there. No, perfect. It's hard to believe it's only been about five years since you uh, you finished out that role, and you think how much connectivity has become ubiquitous again. You know, I had several examples earlier, but in in all of our vehicles at this point. So again, it sounds like you were planting seeds very early that the rest of the industry has uh, has really really caught up to. Let's um let's fast forward to your your most recent role um, and that is uh, directing uh, Caterpillar's digital IoT platform. Cat of course being another early pioneer in connected mobility. But tell us a bit about the role and what the your focus was for for, uh, this platform? Sure. So actually, uh, CAT started their connectivity journey shortly after GM did. And, um, and I, I guess probably not that well known, but they run um, rather large vehicles in, in uh, mining areas autonomously. So we're talking about mining trucks that weigh up to 2 million pounds. Uh, going 40 miles an hour um, with nobody in the driver's seat uh, and running 24-7 a day. So they've certainly been a leader uh, in connectivity. They've been a leader in autonomy uh, as well. And in order to, to do some of that, uh, they, ha they had to be able to acquire data off of the assets. And they were successful in acquiring data from a variety of, of their products and in many different types of, of environments. And because of that diversity in the environments, their connectivity strategy had to include multiple ways to connect to the assets. So, you know, we, we in the OnStar and telematics space in the automotive industry, we talk about cellular people sometimes say satellite, that's really for GPS, uh, you know, location services, but for Caterpillar, satellite was a uh, was more than just for GPS. It was really for communication as well as other wireless uh, strategies. And so, though they had that capability of connectivity, there really wasn't an integrated platform 
or easy way for them to access the data. Um, there wasn't a way for them to build applications that exploited that data to the customer's advantage or, or to provide competitive uh, advantage to the company. And so my team took on uh, many of those challenges to, to address them. We consolidated data sets. Sometimes data sets were unique to a business unit within uh, Caterpillar and didn't cross and, and weren't leveraged at an enterprise level. So we were able to consolidate uh, these data sets. We built a robust set of APIs to, to be able to access the data. Um, we actually were the, were the team that did the first hosting of uh, live applications uh, in the cloud. And on top of that, we built an application development framework as part of that platform. And somewhat because of the complexity of the relationship between the enterprise and, and the dealer network who are independent businesses, it was difficult to access customer data. So not only the telematics data, but also the customer and some of the dealer uh, data as well. And so, and that was because a lot of that was contained actually just within the, the dealership. So as part of that platform, we also built an infrastructure with common components that facilitated the controlled sharing of data for the benefit of the customers, the dealers, and uh, and Caterpillar. So it was somewhat an extension of my telematics experience, but also the integration into the dealer networks and, and the integration of customer and dealer uh, data as well. Really a pioneer uh, when people traditionally think of digital IoT platforms is very much around the kind of collecting of connecting, collecting the data and, and processing it. But traditionally, when you're looking up and down the value chains, that is a different genre of systems. And it was interesting, especially CAT, I think really was a pioneer in looking all the way down its distribution chain. So post uh, sales service uh, and um, well, sales and service, I should say, just so the audience gets a sense of how large this really was, um, I believe you had a budget of about $200 million and a, and a team of over 1,000 people that were working in this uh, digital space um, uh, under that. So a very large undertaking. I know many of um, the audience will be familiar with Uptake, an analytics platform, and and Kat's early interest in in them as well as an investor. What were some of the lessons that Kat learned about the application of analytics to mobility, and 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 in partnering with a with a young company? Yeah, so um, I did warn you that I might be a little controversial, um, but I think that's sort of the fun of of having this opportunity. Um, Please. So, so fundamentally, we all know that computers are dumb, right? Uh, they only do what we ask them to do. And so asking the right questions, just like when we're interacting with people, is key to getting a good outcome. And so when it comes to analytics, and some of my friends may disagree with me, I believe one needs to have context. You can't just look at data blindly uh, because in doing so, it's really simple to get results that have a high degree of correlation, but they don't identify the causation of an event. And so my view is that for analytics to be successfully applied in the electromechanical world, which is the space that we're really talking about, it requires a partnership between people 
that are skilled at looking at the data, people we refer to today sort of as data scientists, and those engineers that can provide insights into the designs, as well as the failure mode analysis and the expected resulting events that may occur. So it's really the marriage or the combination of those two different perspectives where one can then begin to exploit the power that the analytics tools uh, bring, to, bring to the table. One without the other is problematic. Uh, as far as partnering with a small company, uh, as my mom used to say, it takes two to tango. Um, and it can be quite a challenge as the objectives of each have to be clearly understood they're not always the same. They typically are not the same. Uh, the rules of, an, of engagement have to be unambiguous. And I think most importantly, the aggregated goals have to be conducive to a productive relationship. And so in some ways, I would say it's no different than a marriage. It may have a different term to it or, or life cycle associated with it. But for um, small companies to be engaged with large enterprises, it really needs to be a win-win um, relationship. And, and those can be really hard to, um, you know, to formulate and, and particularly difficult to ex execute because of those uh, different objectives that, that the uh, entities may have. So after four phenomenal roles and, and as many, if not more, impactful leadership roles, or I should say four phenomenal companies and impactful leadership roles within those, I think the big question we all have is what's next for Eric? That's a great question. I, and, you know, I really wish I was a clairvoyant. Um, I don't play the lottery, but I probably would if I was a clairvoyant. Uh, but, you know, what I've had the opportunity to do since leaving Caterpillar is, for me, a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And it was an opportunity to, to take a step back, um, to move back home. Um, back home for me is, is the Boston area. I'm a native Bostonian. And to focus on supporting my extended family. My, my dad is turning 95 in a, a few days. And living by himself in the house that I grew up in. And, and you know, it really was an opportunity for me to uh, value some of that time, you know, remaining time that, that we have. Um, and, and being able to take a step back and relieve myself of, of many of those high-stress roles I've had throughout my career to be introspective, uh, quite frankly, to get rejuvenated, um, I've had the opportunity to build what I call my private maker space. And, um, and so that's been, you know, you, you multitask in the background thinking about and being introspective and all that, and you're solving problems uh, all day long as, as you're building this, uh, this uh, building and, and, and space. And so as I think about looking forward, having fun is really high on my priority list. And what really floats my boat is solving seemingly impossible problems. There are probably a lot of sports analogies I, I could use, and, and maybe as a Boston Red Sox fan that suffered through the World Series drought, folks can relate to the elation of achieving victory. But being a fan is different than being a member of the team. 
or even the leader of the team. So what I've come to realize I miss the most is leading a team through the journeys of identifying and solving large complex problems. And, you know, once, once an individual makes the transition from being an individual contributor to leading others, the satisfaction of accomplishment really belongs to the doers. As I said earlier, we as leaders don't really do anything. Um, it's the people in the trenches that actually are, are the ones that are accomplishing. And the satisfaction that, that a leader gets has to come from knowing what we did to help the team to succeed. So sort of with that as the background, you know, what are my thoughts? What's next? Uh, they're really twofold. Uh, I've come to, to think that um, participating on one or, or two boards and, and being able to share some of my experiences and insights um, could be rewarding for me and uh, a give back and beneficial to other entities. And secondly, I'm thinking about uh, looking for an opportunity that lets me contribute as a senior leader uh, again. I'm not exactly sure what that'll look like, um, but uh, you know we'll we'll see what the the future holds. In the in the meantime, I've uh, stayed connected uh, with folks. I've uh, helped a couple of startups in the Boston area, um, sort of in the same way, just providing some some connections for them, some critique of what they're doing uh, and the like, and even got to help uh, some former colleagues do some SPAC um, evaluation work. So um, it, it'll be interesting to see what the future holds, but really looking forward to uh, the next part of the journey. Well, and, and as, as much as we are in terms of uh, trying to help you via our uh, exec search and, and ventures arm as well. So finally, in closing, um, can you provide recommendations of books and or resources that inspire you? Sure. Uh, so I love to read. And for so much of my career, I only got to read when I was traveling overseas on flights. You know, I'd, I'd buy, I'd go to China, I'd buy two paperback books because I knew on the way over there that I'd read one and then and on the way back, I'd have another one to read. And then the Kindle came out and the iPad and, and all that. But I would say probably like many people today, I do most of my reading online and I maybe get sucked into a little bit, but I follow the trails, um, you know, through as things I think excite me or, or, or interest me. There is one book though, uh, that I think has some great points. It's been out for a long time now. So it's, it's, it's uh, I don't think it's stale. Um, but it's the book that Jim Collins wrote, Good to Great. And the reason that I recommend people, and it's an easy read, but the reason I recommend people to take a look at that is a company success isn't dependent on the bricks and mortar of their facility as much as it is on its people. So nothing is more important than getting the right people on the bus and putting them in the right seats, which is really the uh, the basis of Jim's book. 
Good to great. Uh, absolutely great book. I was lucky enough to be at uh, Philip Morris at the time that uh, he was interviewing them for uh, their part in that book as well. And I fully agree with you. It's all about the people. So wonderful recommendation. So Eric, thank you for this insightful interview. Well, Ken, I would say more thanks go out to you uh, and to your team for giving me this opportunity. Uh, it's always great to share some history, um, but it, it, you know when you do these things, it also gives uh, or has given me an opportunity to be somewhat introspective and and to reflect on my journey. <clears throat> Given all the challenges that the world faces today, it's really exciting to think about the possibilities of a brighter future. And I'm looking forward to contributing to it. So once again, thanks, Ken. All right. So this has been Eric Litt, Digital Mobility Executive, uh, with uh, formerly with CAT and, and General Motors. And if I might add, solver of seemingly impossible problems. So thank you for listening. And please join us next week for the next episode of our Digital Industry Leadership Podcast Series produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. Thank you and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Leadership Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the discussions. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of prior podcasts, webinars, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening. 